Welcome to New Cities Sermon Podcast. Join us as we root deep in God's Word, expecting to be encouraged, challenged, and formed to be more like Jesus together. Let's get into the scriptures now. In our series called uh, Faith for Exiles, Resistance and Resilience, and I wanted to play that video for you just so that you could see that as we talk about this, we're actually talking about a historical reality that the people of God went to in 586 when Babylon captured them out of Jerusalem and, and took them to a foreign country, took them to Babylon. And as we look at the Bible, one of the things that's helpful to know is that many of the books of the Bible deal with this historical event. Uh, many of the books of the Bible actually take place before the exile and show you kind of why it happened or they're completely occurring during the exile, or they show the return from exile. And so I wanted to just, just so you know, when you pick up your Bible, that this is actually a big section of what's happening as we talk about being in exile. But then, as the video said, that idea of being in exile is actually a metaphor that the New Testament picks up on of what it's like to be a Christian, that we're not at home. When Jesus returns, he will renew all things. He'll make the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, and that's when we'll be home. But right now we live in the tension of living a faith for exiles. I, I want to pray for us, and then we're going to read some scripture. I want to pray for our sermon time, but I also want to pray specifically for what's happening in Israel and, uh, and ask for God's peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that your word would shape us, that you would help us um, embrace what it's like to be a person who walks by faith when we're not home. Lord, we long for comfort. We long for power. We long for things just to be easy. Uh, but you never promised that to us. You, you promised that one day all things would be made right. But you said at this point in our lives, things would be challenging. It would be hard to serve you. And so we pray that even as we dig deeper into this metaphor of what it means to be an exile here, that you would help us really embrace these things, that you would change how we think and what we love and what we do. And Lord, we do pray for what's happening right now in Israel. We know there's, there's years and years of conflict, Lord. We pray that, um, that there would be peace that is made in the, midst of, in the midst of murder, in the midst of killing, Lord. We pray that there would be love uh, from unexpected places. We pray that for those people who know you, Jesus, that you would help them to step up and love their enemies. We pray that you would protect the vulnerable, Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to be prayerful for these things. And all God's people said, amen. We're going to read three scriptures, uh, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, Psalm 137, and then 1 Peter uh, 2, 9 through 12. So let's start with Daniel verses 1, 1 through 8. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. 
young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language, that's the Babylonian language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank, and they were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend to the king. Among them from the Judahites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank, so he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. Psalm 137 is a lament. It's a psalm of lament that comes from this time of exile. The psalmist writes, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There we hung up our lyres and the poplar trees for our captors. There asked us for, for our captors, there asked us for songs and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on a foreign soil? And then 1 Peter 2, in the New Testament, Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. The word of God. Just by show of hands, how many of you played high school sports? Okay, we have a good amount. Do you remember the difference between playing at your home stadium or your home gymnasium? and then playing at an away stadium or an away gymnasium. Do you remember the difference? You, when you're at home, everything is for you. You're getting cheered on. Uh, you know where everything is. Everything is in your advantage. But then when you go to that away stadium, all of a sudden you're getting booed. When you're in the locker room, everything's unfamiliar. If you're playing basketball, the court feels unfamiliar. You don't remember all the spots that are familiar. Well, in 1997, if you'll indulge me for a moment, in 1997, I was playing high school basketball in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and our team made the state Sweet 16, which means there's only 16 teams left. And we had an awesome experience playing at home. And if you'll really indulge me for a second, I'll play you a video. We won that game 73 to 53. And, um, and it was awesome. I mean... It was so intimidating for the opposing team to come into our gymnasium because of that intro that we had. That The Chicago Bulls were doing that at the time, so we did it, uh, and it was awesome. In fact, you might recognize the voice of the announcer. That's my dad. My dad was the announcer. 
And so everyone, I mean, it was great. Like it was so, such an adrenaline rush to run out to all those, those people cheering for us and celebrating us to win by 20 points in the Sweet 16 and even to hear, you know, my dad's voice in the background. Um, but then we went to the Elite Eight and we didn't play at home. We played an away game. We, we drove about three hours up to Orlando. And now we had studied the game film. So we had watched film of this particular team and we knew them well. We knew who their good players were. We knew what their numbers were. We knew what their names were. We were ready. Except when we got up to their gymnasium, everything was unfamiliar. We started looking at their players and like we didn't recognize anybody. Like, what's going on? These are not the same guys that we saw in the videos. Something, something must have happened. Uh, but then what was strange was that the bench that we sat on for our team was the first row of the stands. So it would be like if we were sitting here and then all their fans were right behind us. And it did not go well. It was completely intimidating. Their fans, we thought our fans were rowdy. Their fans were rowdy. In fact, some of their fans during the middle of the game would get up and come around and stand in between our bench and the court and get in our face and yell at us. And it was totally intimidating. Uh, so we found out, we lost that game, by the way. We found out a year later that they had cheated, that that particular team had gotten players to play on their team who didn't even go to their school which is why when we got there, we didn't recognize anybody. <laughs> they were not high school players. But it was so interesting, the contrast from the game before where we were so resilient because everybody was for us. But then to go to that next game, the away game, and find so much resistance. You know, the whole time we're there going, how, how can we play our game in this place? How can we play our game when everything's unfamiliar, when at times it almost felt unsafe, and when they didn't play by not just our rules, but any rules? How can we play? I think that's a question that's helpful for us as followers of Jesus, because as our culture continues to shift, we find ourselves asking a similar question. How can we live as followers of Jesus in this culture? How in the world are we supposed to do that when it feels unfamiliar, when it feels unsafe, when it feels like there are no rules? The culture is going through an incredible shift so fast. And what we're finding is that more and more people are calling themselves religious nuns, not N-U-N-S, N-U-N-S. N-U-N-S, like Catholics, but N-O-N-E-S. In other words, people have no religious affiliation. On top of that, the church doesn't have a really great reputation in this moment in the West, and so more people are saying, we're not just nuns, we're duns. We are done with church. And so whereas church kind of was like, maybe, uh, maybe church people were viewed as like good, but a little self-righteous, now, oftentimes, people that go to church are actually viewed as immoral. Like the people at church, they're the bad guys. In fact, maybe some of you are here today and you say, you know what, I used to be a Christian, but I'm not a Christian anymore because it felt like the, the church and the faith was so out of touch. Or, or maybe you're a person who's been a Christian a very long time, 
And the shift in culture has made it feel like the ground is moving underneath you. Or maybe you're a new Christian and you're following Jesus and you're excited, but you're feeling this resistance at the same time. Like the more I follow Jesus, the harder it gets to follow Jesus because not everyone's excited that I'm following Jesus. Uh, How can we play our game in an away stadium How can we follow Jesus in this cultural moment? It's helpful to know that during the exile, they were asking a very similar question. In the book of Psalms, we read this verse, Psalms 137, verse 4. The people lament, how can we? How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? Now, for them, it wasn't just a heart issue. It really was a problem. They were used to worshiping the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem, and now they're hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Not only that, but the temple has been robbed of the, of the, the things that they used to worship. So the worship has been deconstructed. Their leaders have been seized. Their identity has been colonized. It feels like their faith in God is a failure, and their purpose in Babylon, well, it's just pointless, Why are we here? How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? How can we live as followers of Jesus when the culture is so resistant? I want to pull out three principles from the scriptures that we read. Three principles that will help us have resilient faith in the midst of resistance. And the three things I want to point out are remember, live, and trust. That in this moment, it is crucial that we remember our identity in Christ. That secondly, as followers of Jesus, we are called to live differently, unapologetically. And thirdly, we must trust confidently in God, his character, and his his promises. First of all, let's talk about remembering identity. What's happening in Daniel chapter one is identity theft. Daniel and his friends are taken from Babylon and they are put in the king's court. And the first thing that they do is they are assigned new names. Uh, Among them from the Judahites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And all of their names have something to do with their God. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Hananiah's name means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael's name means who is what God is. And Azariah's name means Yahweh is a helper. But as they're taken into Babylon's court, their identity is changed. They're given new names, Babylonian names, whose names don't point to the one true God, but rather to the Babylonian gods. Their names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all come from the Babylonian gods, Marduk, Bel, and Nebo. And that is intentional because the Babylonian court wants to wipe the one true God from Daniel and his friends' memory. See, friends, in our cultural moment, something similar can happen. Our identity in Christ, we can allow it to be stolen from our minds. Now, we are always who we are in Christ, but we often forget to hold on to that. 
and we let the gods of our culture rename us. We see ourselves by the culture's God of financial success. And when we begin to live our life based on whether we're successful or not, and we let that create our identity rather than the one true God. We pursue freedom and pleasure, and we let those good things become ultimate things, and then we view ourselves by how much freedom and how much pleasure we have. Or even as we talk about politics, as we talk about politics, it's not easy to, or it is easy actually to figure out who you disagree with in politics. But I think what can be harder for us as Christians is being willing to identify more with Jesus than we do our politics, which means that we have to be willing not just to critique the other people, but to critique the things in our own party, in our own political position that are wrong. And when you do that, you will be identified as a traitor. So in that moment, you can listen to what the world says about you as you follow Jesus. In fact, when you admit that you follow Jesus, you might be identified as a bigot. People might say, well, I don't want to have anything to do with you because I know those Christians, and those Christians are closed-minded and they're prejudiced. See, there's ways that the gods of the culture tries to steal our identity in Christ. And we have to remember our identity. In fact, that's where our resilient faith comes from. It's hearing what the culture says about us. It's hearing the names that it gives us, but holding on to who we really are in Christ. You know, what's interesting about Daniel's name, Belteshazzar, is is it's mentioned several times in the book of Daniel. But every time Daniel is called Belteshazzar, it's it's not like he takes one or the other name. In fact, four different times it says Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. It's almost as if the writer of this book wants to remind us that his true identity is in God, even if he's called another name. Over and over again, Daniel is going to be called to be identified by someone else as Belteshazzar, and yet hold on to who he is as Daniel, which means God is my judge. He's going to be named by the gods of Babylon, and yet at the same time hold on to his identity in the one true God. And as our culture changes, we have to remember what God has called us. The Apostle Peter writes to believers in exile in 1 Peter chapter 2. He reminds them who they are. But you are a chosen race. You are a special people that has been chosen specifically by God. You are a royal priesthood. The king of the universe has bestowed upon you the honor of representing him to the world. You are a holy nation set apart for God's purposes, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That is your identity. You had not received mercy, but now your identity is that you have received mercy. We're called to live in the tension of what the culture says about us 
and what the temptations of our heart towards the gods of this culture are and who we are in Christ. We must remember our identity in him. And I think we even saw a little bit of that last week. Last week I wasn't here, but I heard in the middle of the service the power went out like three times. I actually, I texted the guy who was preaching and I was teasing with, I was teasing him. I said, I heard you preach so well that, that you shut the power down. But, but here's what I loved, um, what Marsha told me. She said it was really beautiful that even though the power went out, that the saints still sang. There was something beautiful about the electricity getting cut off and the people in the pews saying, you know what? Even if there is no music, our identity is still as the people of God, and we will praise him. Those are little practice moments where we see who we are and how we identify ourselves. When we lose things, do we still see ourselves and do we act like the people of God? Because that is our true identity. And when we get that, we will not only identify with God, but we will live differently. In Daniel 1.8, it says Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. Now, it never really says why Daniel makes this decision. We think that maybe, maybe some of it was that the, the, the court in Babylon ate meat that the Jewish people considered unclean, and so he didn't want to do that. But I think it's, I think it's more than that. Um, I think that Daniel just wanted to be different. I think he recognized that I, they are trying to assimilate me into their way of life, and so I'm just going to live differently. They think that their gods are their provider of food. I know my God is the creator of all things. And although food is good, and I don't think Daniel would have been wrong to eat some of it, he just decides He's not going to conform. He's not going to assimilate to Babylon. He's not going to pursue just what feels good. He's going to be different. We're called to do the same. As people living in exile, we're called to see that the way the world works isn't the what Jesus has called us to. Peter puts it this way. He says, dear friends or beloved, I urge you as what? Strangers and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Strangers and exiles. Strangers are often strange. Exiles are often not familiar with the way things work because they're not at home. And what Peter is saying is that because we're strangers and exiles, we should do war against the very sin that Jesus has paid for because that sin does war against our soul. We should act as if sin is foreign to us. We we should be, uh, be strange in a sense in the way that the world looks at us because we're willing to say no to the things that the world thinks is completely acceptable. Abstain from sinful desires. We're not called to assimilate, we're called to live differently. You know, there's so many places that we could be challenged with that. No one, no one will bother you if you don't have any integrity with your money or job. 
many people might say, oh, you deserve it. But as Christians, we're called to live differently. We're called to have integrity with our money. We're called to have integrity in the way we do our jobs. No one might say anything if you say, you know what, I'm not going to follow the Bible's ethic around sex. Everyone would say that's perfectly okay. But as Christians, we're called to live differently. We're called to follow what Jesus says about purity. Even as we think about parenting our kids, we were having a, I was having a good conversation with the Gearhearts yesterday just about, you know, how, how tempting it can be just to, like, give our kids a device and let the device raise them, right? But we're starting to learn that's really dangerous. And I think as parents, we're, we're called to be intentional with our kids. We're called to do it differently. And even with politics, you know, I, I told my wife that uh, I was really going to try and get the church ready for the presidential election this year. And she reminded me that the presidential election isn't until next year. Okay. Like Chris's eyes are getting old. My mind's not as sharp as it once was. But as we go into this political season over the next year, things are going to be heated. It's going to get heated. I love what Mark Sayers, a pastor out in Oregon, says. He really challenges us. He says, the problem with the political left in our country is that the political left wants the kingdom of God without God's king. What that means is the political left wants justice, peace, and prosperity without submission to King Jesus. And so, friends, if you find yourself left of sinner and you're tempted to pursue the king, the kingdom without the king, you are in danger of being assimilated from being a follower of Jesus to putting your political allegiances as primary. But Mark Sayers goes on to say that on the political right, part of the challenge with the political right is that they look at culture as if it has been Christianized, failing to look at the failures of our country in the past, failing to look at how people have used the name of Jesus but not lived out what it means to follow Jesus. And too often what I see on the political right is the mission becomes stopping the libs rather than pursuing the lost. And if you say, hey, listen, my main mission is to get, uh, is to stop the liberals then you have been assimilated because your main mission isn't that. Your main mission is to pursue the lost in the name of Jesus. Friends, we are always at risk for being assimilated into our culture rather than living differently. And we can only do that if we're willing to trust God confidently. You can imagine how much it had, would have been troublesome for them to try and trust God after the temple had been burned, after their people had been captured, and they had been taken out of the promised land, out of the land that God had promised them. God had promised this land. Why are we in Babylon? Have God's promises failed? How are we supposed to trust? Not only that, but it reminds us that the king the king himself, the king in the line of Judah, the king that would ultimately bring the line of, from the line of David that would ultimately bring the Messiah, 
that king is no longer on his throne. How could God's promises be true when we're no longer in the promised land and God's promised king is now in captivity? Well, Daniel sees the whole story from God's perspective. Daniel 1 reminds us, verses 1 and 2, that in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And all this was part of the hand of God. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him. In other words, God is not inactive. This whole exile is not apart from God's purposes. His promises have not failed. This is all part of his plan. And in fact, as you go further in the story of Daniel, you'll see in Daniel chapter 9 that Daniel trusts God in the midst of this whole story. Because God has said to him, God has said to his people, back when Moses was leading the people of God, that God said, if you break the covenant, you will be taken out of the promised land. And Daniel recognizes that this isn't some random event, that they're in exile because of their sin. But he also believes what God says. After 70 years, we will return. So Daniel sees the whole story and their position in Babylon as a further reason to trust God, not a reason not to trust God. So as you, a believer, live in a tumultuous time, live in a time when it feels hard to be a Christian, live in a time when things don't work out, life is tough, can you trust God with your story? Can you trust, even if you don't feel at home in your home, that God has a purpose for you and his promises are active? Can, can you trust God confidently when things at work are challenging or difficult because it's, you're a Christian? Can you trust that even though you're praying for your friends, it seems like nothing's happening, that God promises he will answer prayer? Can you trust confidently with your story? Can you trust confidently with the whole story that God's promises are true? In the midst of this difficult season that we're going to study, that the exilic, the exile where their people were taken to Babylon, they had to learn to trust that God's promises were true and they were going to be used by God even though they were in a place they didn't want to be. As the worship team comes back up, we need to remember the keys for resilient faith in the midst of resistance. Remembering our identity, a commitment to live differently, and a God who calls us to trust him confidently. This is the way of following Jesus when you're not playing at home. This is the way of following Jesus in resistance. This is the way to be resilient. This is faith for exiles. And we have faith because we have a faithful God. Let's pray. Thank you for joining with us as we rooted deep in God's word. If you found this sermon encouraging, share it with a friend. You can learn more about New City by going to newcityhh.com or checking us out on social media by searching New City HH. We'll see you next week.